Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Blaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're doing a re-release because it's right around the holidays and I'm taking a break. I'm with my family and every holiday we head down to Florida. And well, last year we went to Disney World, but most of the time we go to the beach. So that's where I am on the beach in my happy place. So to help prepare for this little break, I looked through my archives and I pulled some out that I hadn't listened to in a while. And I thought about this great one that I did with Tamara Hopkins and she, wow, does she have great information. So it's breastfeeding 101. Let me do a little bit about Tamara. Okay. There's a lot of initials here. So let's see how my dyslexia does. All right. So Tamara Hopkins, FNP, I don't know what that stands for, RN, that's a nurse, IBCLC, she's lactation consultant, LCCE, Lamaze Childbirth Educator, and CHHC. I don't know what that one is either, but I bet it's important. And she is the director of Stork and Cradle here in New York City. So this episode is Breastfeeding 101 because we talk about everything an expectant and new parent needs to know about breastfeeding in the first few days of baby's arrival and what to do during pregnancy to prepare for breastfeeding. We also talk about discussing finding a lactation consultant, so super important. Now, I will say as we prepare to re-release this, Lily, who does all the listening and editing, editing with Eddie, our sound engineer, mentioned that there's a cat meowing in the first few minutes. I don't know whose cat that is. My cat does not meow. Maybe it was something outside I didn't hear. So it's just in the beginning. Move through it because Tamara has some great information. So don't lose hope on that. So enjoy that. Last few things, teacher training, where I'm confident we're going to be full again for the spring in New York. We already have received many applications. Um, And then we're around the country. Who's Afraid the Pregnant Yogi, our online course. It's gift giving season. And we have a little package of four one hour prenatal yoga videos. So you can enjoy that. And lastly, I want to say thank you for those that leave rating and reviews. It helps people find us. And we've got some really lovely reviews left recently. So thank you. And I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. It means a lot to me. And as we head into the holidays, I just hope you have a wonderful and safe holiday and you'll be spending time with the people you love. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, Tamara. Thank you so much for coming on to Yoga Birth Babies and letting us pick your brain about everything breastfeeding related. Hey, Deb. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. All right. So we're going to dive into, I'm calling this breastfeeding 101. I'm kind of, I pulled a menagerie of questions and I actually put out to our community, if they had breastfeeding questions or concerns, shoot me those questions. So that's how some of this came about. So we're diving into the whole world of breastfeeding and I thank you so much. All right. So first, before we get into that, I would just love to know a little bit about what brought you to breastfeeding and childbirth education. Had that become your passion? Uh, uh, sort of a long journey, but it started all the way back really when I was in the sixth grade. You know, first learning about the birds and the bees and the babies coming together from 
two little itty bitty cells. I mean, it just amazed me. And I was fascinated about babies. I'm the youngest out of eight children. So I had tons of nieces and nephews. And even my nephews were having babies. My nephew is older than me. So (laughs) they were having babies. um, And I was taking care of them. And I wanted to become an obstetrician. However, I learned that in medical school, you needed to dissect a cadaver. And I was traumatized after taken to see the night of the living dead. And I was seriously like, (laughs) so afraid of dead people. It just kind of turned me off. And my sister is a nurse. And I started to read up about nursing careers and I learned about nurse midwifery. And so that was it. I went to nursing school to become a midwife. And in my first year of college, I actually had a baby. And and I had a choice of finishing my organic chemistry class or going to childbirth class. And I brought a Lamaze book. I brought a breastfeeding book. I finished out my chemistry class. And I thought, how difficult could it be? Um, The book told me what to do. And so I did everything the book did or said to do. And I had I experienced everything in my birth that I did not want. It was just not a great experience. I was not successful with breastfeeding. I couldn't even find La Leche League. Um, um, So, yeah, that was the start. When I went back into nursing school, I I clearly remember sitting in the president of the nursing department office and picking up a student nursing magazine and flipping through it. And there was an ad in there and it said, become a childbirth educator. And I thought, oh, I wonder what I missed. And so out of pure curiosity, I took the course and the woman who led it led the training, was a late midwife and a La Leche League leader. And she really opened up my perspective of what birth could be. And she talked about the holistic aspects of birth and the dynamics of really touch and um, the mental and spiritual aspects of birth and also the work of breastfeeding. And I went into um, nursing, like determined to really make this work for women. And as soon as I graduated, a year after um, working just med, regular med surge, I started labor and delivery and I started teaching childbirth classes. And I loved it. I loved being on that side where I could really tell families, this is really what you need to know. The book is going to tell you just some theories and some basic stuff, but you really want to be sitting with someone that you can formulate a relationship with and talk and feel as though you can get some answers to get the real deal. I feel like that's what I miss. I need somebody to tell me, no, this is what's going to really happen. And this is what you do, should do, and should expect. And so I taught a while at a hospital um, in New York City, and then I worked at uh, the birthing center, which, well, a birthing center, which is no longer around, but that experience really also was a shock to my system to go from the hospital to a birthing center. And um, I taught childbirth classes there, and the lactation consultant really put me under her wing because it it was very natural, I think kind of easy for me to help to get babies to latch and really help moms to understand how their babies were eating and when their babies were eating. And she was my 
she really pushed me into the world of becoming a lactation consultant. And so I went into full training and I have been a, well, I've been in private practice now for about five years. And so that is what led me. My baby is 22 years old now. <laughs> and well, she's, is she 22? Goodness. Yeah, she's 22. And it happens at her birth a little earlier, but really at her birth is what led me to this journey. It's all, it's interesting. The more people I talk to, it's usually those that had something that didn't quite gel during their birth that led them to exploring further. I remember speaking with, I think it was Pam England, who said she was um, a midwife and the only one in her family that ended up with a cesarean. And here she was as a home birth midwife thinking, what did I do wrong or what happened? And so it seems to be those that really find their voice, it's usually from a place of I guess, turmoil, you know, it's just something didn't go right and they want to figure out why. So that's a one. Thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. All right. So let's jump into some of the questions that our community posed. So how would a mother who wants to breastfeed best set herself up for success? So is it vital to get information before the baby arrives or does she need to have support ready? What what do you think? Okay. (laughs) I get so disheartened when moms come to see me and they have so much trouble and they specifically say that their um, care provider told them it was a waste of time to take a prenatal breastfeeding class. I think that is the number one thing that every expectant mother needs to do. Unless, of course, you've grown up and you've seen your siblings be breastfed, your auntie breastfed, your sister breastfed, and you've seen that whole progress from the beginning until they weaned, that's a different type of learning and knowing. But most women nowadays don't have that. They don't see that. And so to sit in a class for two to three hours, however long the class is, and really understand how the breasts make milk, how the baby removes the milk from the breast, what's the process of the continuum of making enough milk for the baby, and then working through common um, issues such as sore nipples and mastitis or thrush and learning to pump, that is just invaluable because once the baby comes, there is no time to actually sit and learn. The mental capacity for that when you are trying to recover and try to read through a book and get that information is not the same. So I would have moms search out where they think is the best place for them to take a breastfeeding class and then call the insurance company and see, um, well, make sure you get a pump, use your insurance benefits while you can, because who knows what's coming (laughs) down the pike. So get, get a double electric pump with your insurance company and then use your insurance for prenatal classes. So my company, Stork and Cradle, accepts insurance right away, but some insurance companies will offer um, out-of-network benefits. So it's important for moms to do that research now. What are the rules for your out-of-network benefit? Will they reimburse for a breastfeeding class? And if you have to pay for a lactation consultant out-of-pocket, will the insurance reimburse that fee? But 
definitely, without a doubt, if there's any class that should be taken, it is a prenatal breastfeeding class. And take the whole family if you can. You know, some classes that you bring everyone, other classes you may need to pay a, a smaller fee, but the, the, the partner and the grandmommies, because a lot of grandmothers haven't breastfed. And I hate to say it, but I speak in real terms. They can sabotage breastfeeding. So some grandmoms are the sabotagers and not the support network that a lot of families need and desire. So educating the grandmothers and grandparents are important as well. Can I continue that question of what is it that you see the grandmothers doing? Is it that they say, oh, I didn't breastfeed. You don't have to. Because I see that sometimes the partners get nervous, like, oh, we don't know if you're getting enough. And the grandmother's saying, oh, we don't know if you're getting enough. In what way do you see partners or grandmothers sabotage the mom's breastfeeding? Um, the exact way they are concerned that the baby isn't getting enough. Um, they've come from an era or they've seen families put cereal in the baby's bottles very early for the baby to sleep. So when the moms are really talking and expressing themselves about being exhausted or being tired and about the baby nursing all night, and they're trying to help, they're coming from a place of help, not understanding that is really un- I mean, the whole breastfeeding establishment and they're saying, no, just give the baby a bottle. Oh, formula is fine. I heard that somebody gives their babies formulas at night and the baby sleeps really long. And so it's those things that um, it's there. They just don't understand how the body works with the production of the milk and also don't have this, a lot of the skills to look at the baby and say, well, is the baby well-fed or not well-fed? And just because they're, they look like they're rooting or their tongues are sticking out or they're smacking on their fingers may not necessarily mean that they're hungry. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. Yeah. So I, I support that completely that we want the partners, everyone around the mom to support her. Cause I've heard that from when I do my, when I used to do my postpartum visits, the partner would often say like, you know, I'm encouraging a bottle cause I'm concerned baby's not gaining weight. So I'm glad to hear it wasn't just, well, I know if I'm glad, but it's interesting <laughs> to hear that this is a phenomenon and that we need to have everyone supported. I remember my husband came with me to, when I took a breastfeeding class with my first child and I'm so glad he did because he took notes and there was a point at like 3 a.m. when I was freaking out. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And he pulled out the notebook and it really helped. So I think it's important to have everyone on board and feel confident that the mom can do it because she's hormonal and tired. And if she starts to feel, you know, a lack of support, she may may cave. Absolutely. And even the moms, when they're in class writing notes, they forget too. Yeah. I would have thought that I knew all this having been around babies for years, but as soon as it came to my turn, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Different. Yeah. So what can a mom expect in her first few days when baby's born? Oh, lots and lots of nursing, lots of nursing, short, intermittent spans of sleep. 
Um, and unfortunately, she might expect to have some sore nipples. Um, and that's just because you have this baby who's suckling on the breast at least probably 10 times a day in spurts of 15 to 30 minutes, and you're rotating the baby back and forth. And so some soreness may be expected, but we definitely don't want a mom to expect to have cracking or bleeding on the skin, developing scabs. That's, that's not normal. Mm-hmm. So when, so if moms don't know much about breastfeeding, can you talk a little bit about when the milk comes in and what happens before then? Sure. And that, that definitely is so important because, um, new mothers should expect that their breasts are not going to be rock hard full or even flowing like a river of milk in the first couple of days. The breasts start to make milk around the 16 week, the week of pregnancy pregnancy and the same size that the breast is going to be the day of the birth is probably what they're going to be three to four days after the birth as well, because the baby's bellies are really tiny and it's just colostrum, which is dropped, super saturated with nutrients and proteins, antibodies. And so the moms who are listening, please know that it's normal if you don't don't leak if you don't feel full or engorged. So that's the normal progression of getting the baby ready to take larger volumes, to actually um, get the gut prepared and ready. And I tell moms that if you don't feel a natural shift in your breast by day five, then you should actually reach out to a lactation consultant. So with frequent feeding from the day that the baby is born, eight to 10 times a day, short um, spurts or long spurts, expect one longer stretch of sleep each 24-hour period. And by day five, with that type of stimulation, you should feel the breast kind of go from feeling soft to like blowing up (laughs) and feeling kind of rocky and full, maybe still not leaking, but a absolute shift and change, which would indicate that the milk has increased or what we would call, um, quote unquote, the milk has come in or let down. And that's when moms start to get engorged. And on the baby side, once the baby starts to latch on, a mom should be able to obviously hear the baby swallowing as well. Okay, that's good. Yes, yeah. so, because I've had people very concerned that they only have a little colostrum. They're concerned that they're not getting enough milk. The milk hasn't come in. So, since if someone is breastfeeding and not bottle feeding, they can't necessarily see how much milk. And I've seen some moms get kind of stressed about that. What are some ways to assure a mom that the baby is getting enough breast milk? And how can you help mothers who feel that they're not producing enough uh, believe that they are getting enough? Or I, I guess we can even add on to that if they're not. Uh, producing enough ways to help that. So that's kind of a big question. We can break it up. Okay. Let me, let me, I'm going to break it up into time spans as well. So I like to kind of look at breastfeeding the first four to five days and then the older babies when they're after five days. So the first like four to five days, how can you tell the baby's getting enough? One is kind of feel the inside of their mouth. Their mouth should be slick and moist. So if the mouth is tacky, your finger is getting stuck in there, you don't feel saliva, then they may not be getting enough. That's one objective way. Of course, we always say watch the diapers. And so the baby should have 
one diaper day one, two, um, excuse me, let me, let me clarify. The first day of life, one wet diaper, one um, bowel movement. Day two, two of each. Day three, three of each. Day two, four, four of each. And then moms are saying, what? So by the time they're 20 days old, they should have 20 wet diapers? I'm like, no. After about day four, remember I mentioned that by day five, we want your milk supply to be in. So then we would have the minimum of four wet diapers a day at day five, a minimum of about four poopy diapers on day four. So that's the second piece. The third piece is after the baby nurses, the baby should pretty much look satisfied. So they should come off looking calm. Their arms should look pretty limp. Um, They may fall right asleep or may not. And if they're just sticking out their tongue, kind of tasting the air, that doesn't mean that they didn't get enough. However, if you have a baby who seems to have fallen asleep, but then in like 10 minutes, they're trying to chew their arms and their fists, and they're really unhappy, that baby may actually still need some more. Going to the mom side, Some moms can begin to feel a bit more full before feeding, not necessarily engorged, but then after the feeding, the breast is starting to feel softer, much softer. So it's important also that moms start to do a little bit of breast exam or get to know their breasts in the shape of their nipples because a lot of moms have trouble in the beginning of breastfeeding because they really haven't touched their breasts. They haven't explored their bodies much. And when it comes to bringing the baby to the breast, having being comfortable shaping the breast and putting a hold on the breast so that you can align the baby to the nipple and bring the baby on is so, so important. So looking at yourself plain and clear in the mirror, get a sense of what the breasts look like, how are the nipples shaped, even if you can imagine how you would support the breast so they stay steady when you're bringing the baby on for a latch is also helpful. So we're looking at the moistness of the baby's mouth, wet and stool diapers, the behavior of the baby after feeding, and how the breasts feel before and after. And that will help to um, hold a mom during those in-between times of, let's say, discharge from the hospital into going to see the pediatrician. Now, after day five, that's when you absolutely should feel like, oh, yeah, I got milk. These breasts are really (laughs) um, full, and they should feel soft after feet, you should hear the baby swallowing and the baby should be obviously contented after breastfeeding. Yeah, they get that little baby drunk look. That's what I always yes. call it. And also for moms out there that have never held a newborn, I want to share a small story that I remember doing my prenatal yoga teacher training uh, almost 17 years ago and I held a brand new baby and all of a sudden I had my, like my shirt was wet and I had no idea why. And I looked down, it's kind of this mustard seedy yellow and everyone <laughs> laughed me like, Oh, that's the baby poop. I didn't know as most women that may have not worked with newborns. So when you're saying 
a wet diaper and a baby's stool, let's everyone know that a baby who's just having breastfed, the poop looks different. (laughs) So what I experienced when everyone laughed at me was the baby poop dummy. It's kind of like a mustard seedy Mm -hmm. kind of uh, liquidy. So I just want to clarify that for those that are out there thinking, okay, note to self, wet diapers, poopy diapers. So poopy diapers for newborns are different than what you'll then have when they are eating. Yes. (laughs) Solid food. All right. Thanks. Yes, definitely. And then what about the mom that's thinking that, um, she may want to give up because she feels like she's not getting, she's not producing enough milk. I would really need to sit and talk with a mom. I want to hear what her concerns are. Where is she coming from, um, in terms of her feelings? So, Is it that she had been given a plan and was told that she had to breastfeed the baby every two hours and pump every two hours and also supplement the baby every two hours and she's just worn out and has gotten to a point where she's done? She's like, nope, I'm not doing all this. It's driving me crazy. (laughs) Or um, has she gotten to a point where you know, she just knows her body is not going to produce enough breast milk. And in terms of mental health, that's the best thing for her to do because staying all night or staying up all night with anxiety or during the day, having these excessive thoughts of what can she do to increase milk supply might be different than the mom who actually has a baby that is growing and thriving with breastfeeding. And in her mind, she thinks that she doesn't have enough milk because other people around her aren't supporting her. So it really would depend on where the mom is coming from with her, um, her thoughts and her desire to wean. And I just had a client a few months ago who just did not like the feeling. She did not want her her breast to be full. And she was like, nope, I'm done. I want to wean. I know all the benefits. Just help me, please. And I helped her. And so we went through um, basic stuff, you know, keeping the reducing the stimulation on the breast during showers, keeping something cold on the breast. Um, we went even as far as prescriptive medications to help, to help her wean off. So there definitely isn't a judgment on what moms need to do. I just want a mom to be super duper clear about why they want to wean. One, it is a long process. You can't just cold turkey stop without having a lot of um, issues or potential issues such as mastitis, which is not fun, or even a breast abscess. And then we don't want moms to then come back later on and be like, oh, I shouldn't have weaned. How can I start over again? Mm-hmm. Are there any uh, medical reasons or what reasons have you run into that someone doesn't produce enough milk? The number one um, reason is a mom that has insufficient glandular tissue or what we call breast hypoplasia. And those moms, um, when we look at their breasts, the the breasts themselves tend to be widely spaced apart from each other. They may be shaped in a tubular fashion instead of like a roundish um, shape. Also, these moms tell me that they didn't notice any growth in their pregnancy during um, it, growth in their breasts during pregnancy, and they haven't gotten any engorgement in the first week 
um, of having the baby. Those moms sometimes can also have polycystic ovarian syndrome, or sometimes those are women who have gestational diabetes or have diabetes um, during their entire life. So those would be the main reasons why a mom is not able to in addition to having um, maybe some sort of reasons for in um, infertility. But I think it kind of circles back a lot to polycystic ovarian syndrome. What about what's interesting is I had a conversation with one of our teacher trainees who had a breast reduction when she was in her teens. And now that she is um, in her late 20s and things look a lot different in her life, she's now thinking, mm-hmm. she's concerned that she won't be able to breastfeed. Have you heard of, um, of that happening? Yeah, um, women who have had any type of breast reduction can go on and they can make some milk. It really just depends on what the breasts look like before, how in terms of shape, how much the breast was reduced, and how long prior to giving the birth. With every menstrual cycle, the breasts change and they grow, and then they do a tremendous amount of change and and growth during pregnancy. So we are absolutely concerned about the surgery where um, the surgeon would remove the entire areola off, severing not only the nerves that speak to the brain to release the hormone prolactin and oxytocin, but also severing the ducts. So whatever mammary glands are left in the breast, sometimes there just is not a highway leading directly to the nipple. So those moms who have had prior breast reduction can still produce milk, but then we have to see, can the milk come out? Mm -hmm. And then what is the volume of milk that's able to come out? I think some breast surgeons, well, a lot of breast surgeons have now become savvy about the need for moms to continue to be able to breastfeed. And so the severing of the ducts with that type of surgery has been reduced. So that's what I've been seeing in clientele where they, there have been women who were able to exclusively breastfeed after breast reduction, but we really won't know until about maybe two or three weeks post the baby's birth with regular stimulation of breastfeeding or pumping or both to see what the supply would be. I'll let her know once this is out to take a listen to that. I'm going to switch gears to pain during breastfeeding. So I remember listening to a webinar when I was renewing my Lamaze certification and the facilitator actually recognized that there's pain, there could be pain at the initial latch, but it should ease up while feeding. But I've also heard other opinions that there should never be pain. What is your opinion? My opinion is that we have to be in the real world and understand that the majority of moms are going to have some discomfort. And I really think it's a disservice to say that it's not going to hurt. Like, breastfeeding is not going to hurt. And that's not to say that um, it's going to hurt and that's the right thing to do. You know, if it's uncomfortable, if it hurts, that's your first cue to get help. So it's a common thing to do, and it's going to be different um, for every mom because 
different moms have different um, responses to pressure, to sharp pain. Um, different um, moms have different shapes and sizes of nipples, also babies. So if we have a mom that has a really, really large nipple and we have a premature baby or even a baby that might have a restriction in the mouth, such as a tongue tie, she's more likely to have pain versus a mom that does not have a large nipple and a full-term baby. So it's important for moms to expect that they may experience some type of pull and tug and they may get soreness. And if they do feel pain, it's not an uncommon thing. That is their cue to get someone to come in there and help them. And so then you were also mentioning what we don't want. Like there could be pain. We want to get someone to help. But what about crack nipples? I had a friend that recently had a baby and she texted me that her nipples were cracked and bleeding. And so I want to always make sure I have the information. I told her I had some like earth mom, angel, baby, boob balm and so I, or nipple butter. And that's what I use. I love that stuff. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> I still have it. Um, but what, besides that's my, that was the only remedy I had in my mind. What can someone do when they Salt have water? Nipples? Oh, okay. That is the most simplest thing to do. And no ladies, it does not burn. <laughs> so this is what you want to do. Get a mug of water, just like a mug. You drink your tea out of, fill it up with water and put a tea a uh, half a teaspoon of salt in that and mix it up and make it a, a solution and keep it in the refrigerator. So when you're really sore, if you have cracking, number one thing is we need to keep it clean so that you don't have bacteria from your hands or the skin inching into the breast, which could possibly develop into mastitis. So after breastfeeding, take two clean cotton balls, dip it in the salt water solution, sit it on the nipples for one to two minutes or or if you get fancy, go get shot glasses, pour the solution in shot glass, tip it up over the nipple so that the shot glass is going to stick along your breast and you can soak your nipples in the saline. But I think it's easier just to saturate a cotton ball and sit it on top of the nipple. I love it. And, <laughs> yeah. So it cleans it out. And you know, we use salt water all the time to gargle for, for sore throat. Mm-hmm. So if this is basic wound care. This is wound care one-on-one clean it out and the the saline will help it to heal, make it feel better. The cooling sensation is also going to make it feel better. Now, I am totally against gel nipple pads. I don't like them. And people say, use them and put them in the refrigerator. But when you put them on, they can be nice and cooling and soothing on the nipple, but then you got to take them off. And they tend to stick and start peeling them off. And if they have cracking, that's um, that is replenishing with good, healthy tissue, that gel pad is taking the healthy tissue with them. And so it kind of strips off the, um, the scab. So I tell my clients, saltwater soaks the cotton ball after nursing, squeeze out some breast milk and use whatever nipple balm you prefer, whether that's olive oil, coconut oil, um, lanolin, or any of the other organic creams and here is a secret. <laughs> put nonstick gauze pads on the nipple and then put your your breast pads on because, again, if you have scabs, they're going to sometimes they ooze or the breast pads can stick to the scab, causing them to come off. So put on a nonstick gauze pad first and then your nipple pad. 
I told her to air her boobs out. Was that wrong? Like not put. Ooh, that's so old school, Deb. Oh, because <laughs> she said it hurt when she put her bra on. And so I said, well, then don't. <laughs> well, right. Then don't. It's better. So what we want to do is moist wound care and not dry. Okay. Because a dry, that's when you get more of the scabs. All right. So, so yeah. So the, the nonstick gauze, because yeah, she's like, every time I put my bra on, it hurts. And so I guess I thought, well, if it hurts, don't do it. Right. Right. <laughs> and if it hurts, don't do it. But you know what? I'm kind of getting over the bras. I don't know. I think sometimes the bras are just unnecessary, especially here comes summertime. And a lot of women can get away with just bras with the, um, excuse me, tank Mm -hmm. tops with the bras. Right. And so then it's so easy to pull down and it really just depends on how big or small the breast is and the shape of them. So if the, the breasts are, the nipples are so tender where even a bra hurts, stop wearing a and just put on a tank top and you can put like a gauze pad over the nipple and put the tank top on if you, if you even need to, but really truly, if there's an open wound or a scab, keep it moist, keep it covered. Sounds good. Yeah. And I'm going to just plug something. It's totally not a sponsorship situation, but when you said that about the, the tank top and I can't believe it, I still wear my glamor mom. I do know that company glamor mom tank tops <laughs> yeah. because for, I loved them when I was breastfeeding and the length is so perfect when I'm teaching. So I'm going to just plug it. This is like not a sponsorship. They didn't pay me for this, but summer's coming up. For the mamas that are going to be walking around the park, coming to yoga, that's a really good one to get to. The the um, latch doesn't pop off because I did have a few, not from Glamour Mom, that I'd be wearing my tank top and all of a sudden it popped off. Oh my like, goodness. It <laughs> wasn't so good. So I'm just going to plug that since you happen to mention, you know, ditching the bra and just going for the tank tops that have the little shelf. All right. Let me get back on track. I got off a little bit. So we started talking a little bit about lactation consultants. So if something hurts get help. So, uh, I know that there are different, there's lactation consultants, there's lactation counselors. What should somebody look for in getting support? Are there any red flags that maybe they're not the most educated or what do you think? If you are looking to hire someone to come help you and they say that they're, they are a lactation consultant, you want to verify that credential on, um, there are several places that you can go. So the first one is you would go to the International Board of Lactation Consultant Examiners website. And so that's iblce.org. And they have the listing of everyone who has passed exam to become an international board certified lactation consultant. And what you want to really understand about those people, the IBCLCs, is they have extensive training, not only um, in didactic or what we would call just education and going to classes. Um, but they also are required to have clinical mentorship or clinical work with other IBCLCs, um, before they are able to take an exam. And anyone who is not an IBCLC, um, has only needed to take education hours and not any, they're not required to have any clinical hours of working directly with an experienced breastfeeding support person or work with moms before their certification. So it depends on what type of work 
or what type of help you really would need um, to decide is a counselor enough? Is a breastfeeding educator enough? Or do you need an IVCOC? But because the the term lactation consultant is not regulated, there are a lot of women or and men who are in the field who use the title lactation consultant, but they are not an IBCOC. So that's the number one thing you want to look for. And I would also, um, if you're in New York City, you want to check the lactation consultant examine, um, excuse me, New York Lactation Consultant Association website, and that's nylca.org for an IBCLC. And if you're across the nation, you can look at uslca.org or ilca.org, which is International Lactation Consultant Association. Okay. So, so say someone finds, well, what if there isn't a lactation consultant around? Is it okay to go for um, the lesser degree, I guess you could say. Oh yeah. You can definitely go for, um, a lesser degree person because that person more likely has tons of passion and is willing to do whatever they need to do to help the mom solve their breastfeeding, um, issue. So you want to look at La Leche League leaders and um, uh, lactation counselors and certified breastfeeding educators and peer counselors at WIC and other mom support um, organizations such as um, Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere and Baby Cafe, um, Baby Breastfeeding USA. All those those, um, places are also good start for breastfeeding health. Cool. So now say, say if someone has someone, they've come to their house or they've gone to a la leche or something, or just maybe a mom's group. Are there any red flags of advice that you've heard? Like I know there's controversy about nipple shields and clearly I was wrong about my advice about not putting the bra on and airing nipples <laughs> out. You know, so although I've never claimed to be a lactation consultant, I just went with common logic on that one. Um, but are there any red flags that if a woman is receiving advice that she might say, hmm, I'm not quite sure about this. Yes. Okay. Here's my pet peeve. My pet peeve is women who tell moms to only breastfeed the baby on one breast because they have to get the high milk. It drives me crazy. When does the high milk start? How much does the high milk how much is in there? When does the hind milk end? When is she supposed to switch? How does she know that the baby is swallowing? None of, no, none of those questions are ever answered when it's just on blog posts or people just mention to the baby. And, you know, we don't have those answers. We know that when the milk sits in the bottle, the milk separates and we see a layer of fat and a, the thinner layer. And there are moms that comment when they're pumped. And we know that they're the first milk, they say, oh, it looks really watery versus later on the milk turns fat or it looks thicker. And that's great. We know that the milk shifts throughout the feeding, but no when. So to really tell a mom to sit and breastfeed her baby only on one breast when she has another breast full of milk is a 
little crazy to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I want moms to watch their babies nurse. So let's just say your baby has probably gotten all the fatty, rich milk when they're no longer swallowing. So putting it into context about actually how to make sure the baby is draining both breasts, getting in enough milk, and the mom making a a good amount of milk. Um, So that's my pet peeve. I think that's one of the the worst advice that's just kind of thrown out there. If your baby is instinctively only feeding on one breast and they're feeding pretty frequently, maybe every two hours, that's not a big deal. But I've had moms come into my office. I'll never forget this one mom. I don't even think the baby maybe was six weeks old, but for like three weeks, she was nursing the baby on one breast for six to eight hours a day and then switching to the other because somebody told her to do that. So to make sure the baby will get all of the fatty, rich, great hind milk, her milk supply tanked because the other breast was so full of milk in between the time and her baby started to lose weight because she, the baby wasn't getting enough milk over all those periods of time. So yeah, please breastfeed both sides, <laughs> unless you are really, really producing a lot of milk. Okay. What about using props like the, my breast fend or the boppy? I remember, um, I worked with Andrea since Brown and she came over and she had me get rid of that because I started to get a little codependent and I'm like, I can't leave the house. I have to do this. And she had me get rid of it and learn how to feed without it. What, what's your advice on that? So, I love the My Breast Friend (laughs) pillow. (laughs) And I even have one of them in my office, in both of the offices, because when a mom, especially as you mentioned before, you know, when you're first new and you're not really sure how to hold a brand new baby, I really like the My Breast Friend because it snaps around you and Mm -hmm. you can pull it up underneath the breast. And then I can get moms to relax because they can recline back. The pillow comes up with them and the baby stays up to the level of the breast. So uh, it prevents them from hunching over where the boppy is, can be so low on the lap or they need extra pillows to hold it up. So in terms of a, a pillow, I'm all for the My Breast Friend. And then once she starts to get really comfortable with handling the baby, the pillow comes away and then we start to nurse without it in a reclined position, holding the baby up to the breast and also getting them ready for breastfeeding in public. Well, I think that's where I was at because it was like three Mm -hmm. weeks and I was, as I mentioned, I was a little codependent and I, I was just freaking out. I'm like, how do I leave the house? I don't have my breast friend with me. And Mm -hmm. so she, she took it away and I was really glad it it felt very (laughs) liberating when she did. I'm like, I can get out. But so you're saying in the beginning supports like that can be really helpful, but at some point don't have a codependent relationship with your breast. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The pillow does not make your latch. No. Okay. It's all about the latch. All right. So (laughs) what is, what's a basic breastfeeding schedule look like for a baby that's feeding on demand? Oh, there is no schedule. (laughs) Well, I mean, like how often should, that's guess I'm, I'm trying to get at. How often should a mom expect she fed, baby napped, baby's now awake? You know, what, how often, like what's her time period on average between finishing to starting? All right. So let me, 
I'll start with a one-month-old. Let's okay. say that a one-month-old should be on, hopefully, some type of a predictable pattern. And typically what a mom can expect is that her baby is going to be feeding closer to the every three hour range. Unless, um, you know, she has a smaller capacity to hold a lot of breast milk in, but closer to an every three hour range. Um, and it doesn't have to be every three hours or so, but the, if she should absolutely be looking for is that the feeding time should decrease. So instead of sitting and nursing for 45 minutes, as the baby gets more efficient with draining the breast, those feedings can drop to like 10 to 15 minutes total, maybe 20 minutes. And that's where learning to tell if a baby is swallowing really kicks in and is very important. That's important to know. Uh, so what are some milestones for breastfeeding? So you're saying they start to space out a little bit after? I think they first start to shorten their breastfeeding okay. before they start to space out. So the feeding sessions get shorter and then the feedings can space out a bit. Very rarely will I find a mom who is able to breastfeed every four hours. Moms out are around out there, but it just depends on her and the baby. So there's so many variables um, to make this feeding schedule. But the next um, milestone outside of the feeding space in a part, I think, is the length of time that the baby begins to sleep overnight. So instead of a baby waking up every two hours, they slowly start to then sleep for four hours and then five hours. And that's major. That, yeah. When, oh, I remember with both my kids, when we hit like a four or five hour period, it was heaven. (laughs) Really, (laughs) really, really changed my life. All right. So I want to talk a So maybe, and I'm going to say I was a little neurotic, but when, when I started going back to work, I of course left a pump at work and I brought a pump wherever I needed to go if I was gone for a significant amount of time. And I kept to about every three to four hours pumping, thinking that's when the baby would eat. Was I being crazy or is that kind of what a pumping schedule looks like for a mom heading back to work? No, that's a great schedule. I think the priority when you're going back to work is to try to get your body into a pattern where you can sleep as long as possible at night and then keep up the rhythm of pumping during the day. So I typically tell my clients to try to pump no later than every four hours during the day every three, if it'll work in your schedule and then pump before you go to sleep and then breastfeed when you wake up in the morning with the baby. And so I'm more concerned and a lot of moms as well about nighttime, right? Cause you want to sleep, but you're, you're doing a lot. You're breastfeeding and working and pumping and rushing home and probably cooking and preparing meals and bottles for daycare. So yes. And also when you're when moms are at work, really getting an efficient pumping pattern where you're massaging and compressing, making sure that you feel as though your breasts are getting drained uh, efficiently. And the first sign that the breasts aren't getting drained efficiently, 
try to get some help, make a few phone calls because you don't want that milk supply to start to drop. And it could be as simple as changing the size of the breast shields mm-hmm. for the pump or changing the, um, the, the little white membrane or any type of suction membrane, depending on what pump you have. Absolutely. I remember one time the membrane had ripped on one of the sides and I was like, why is this one breast not producing? And then I mm-hmm. looked at it and because it didn't have suction. So yeah. I, I worked myself into a frenzy within a very quick short amount of time of, oh my God, I've stopped producing this one side. <laughs> and it really was something so fixable. So what advice do you have for women who want to keep exclusively breastfeeding at work? You said like three to four hours breastfeed at, you know, try to breastfeed in the morning. Is there anything else they can do to try to keep that going if that's important to them? Yeah, it may actually um, include breastfeeding the baby at night. If the, if the baby still wakes up, I don't recommend waking up the baby to feed, um, maybe even pumping in the middle of the night. Or it could mean that when you come home from work, and you breastfeed right away, you may need to also pump after another feeding. So those things are important. Um, Some people might be mad when I say this. So if you're mad at me, I'm sorry. (laughs) But you got to be careful of the type of birth control that you start. So it's very controversial. And there's not a lot of research to back this. It's just anecdotal reports or my colleagues we seeing this out in our offices is when moms especially if a mom is already kind of um teetling on the edge of having enough when she starts the mini pill or that iud the morena or the skyla with progesterone if her body doesn't adjust perfectly to it and she starts breakthrough bleeding those things can make the supply drop. And if a mom starts to get her menstrual cycle, the milk supply is going to drop. And then there's going to be a drop off um, uh, at ovulation and it comes back up when the bleed starts again. So you need to be mindful of that. It's not, I don't have the evidence to say that it would happen with every mom, but if you are in a pattern where milk supply is an issue for you, then you want to really um, do your research. That's great information. All right, I'm going to start to wrap things up and hopefully I'll get this out before the New York baby, New York family baby show. But what is your involvement? Because I know that you're going to be there and I will be there too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, I've I love the baby show. Um, I've been there as a vendor with my company, Stork and Cradle, since they started. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so fun to see all the parents there. But um, this year, I'm going to be on two panels, one with you, <laughs> Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> I think I'm Sunday. You're Saturday and Sunday? Yeah. Okay, cool. So talking about breastfeeding, talking about um, childbirth classes, uh, and I am currently the president of, of the New York Lactation Consultant Association, and we will be there as a group because the New York Family uh, Show is going to be honoring the work that lactations, lactation consultants actually offer to families within the city. So I'm really excited about that. 
That's great. And so if I don't get this produced in time for that, because it's only, I think, next week, um, I also want to take a shout out because, you know, podcasts everyone listens to everywhere. There are other family baby shows. Um, There's one in Chicago, which I'm actually going to be at in August. I know they do one out in L.A. So for our listeners out there, if you're not in New York, check out. I'll make sure I have the link. Check out the website because these expos are a ton of fun. And there's a lot of free goods. Um, There's also a lot. lot. (laughs) My my kids are now three and five, so it's not quite as much. But when I would go with them, I'd be getting a pouch here and a baby food here and this here and this here. And they have raffles. So it's it's lots of fun. I, of course, never won the raffles, but they have a ton of options. (laughs) One of my clients actually won the Dream Nursery. (gasps) That's amazing. Woohoo, yeah. save some money there. <laughs> All right, so before we wrap up, do you have any last minute tips that you want moms that are breastfeeding now or considering breastfeeding just to kind of tuck away? Yeah, I would say um, so many people on social media and you're searching for answers, choose just two main sources where you get ideas from. Because if you start looking into too many different people, it's all going to conflict each other mm-hmm. and it's just going to make you confused. So find your true, your two trusted sources and stick with them. Though That is a fantastic tip. And then if people are loving what you're saying, because it's fantastic information, where can they find you? They can find me on Facebook and Instagram at storkandcradle.com. Um, they, uh, at Stork and Cradle, they can find my Facebook page, Tamara Hawkins. They can even call my office, um, 646-627-7334. Right, we'll make sure all that's in the show notes too. Thank you so much, Tamara, for talking to me. I really enjoyed it. I love the idea of supporting moms and you really do that. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. I'll see you on the panel next I'll Sunday. I'll see you there. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.